0: Let's take our Bibles once again and turn back to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, and verses 26 through 28 is where we are today. Most of you probably remember uh, a number of years ago now when uh, Oldsmobile, which is no longer in existence, uh, was trying to market their cars for a younger generation. Uh, The the car was seen as something older people drove and they wanted young people to drive their cars. didn't work apparently because, like I said, they're out of existence. But uh, remember the ad they used to have about their cars, They said, these are not your father's Oldsmobiles. Uh, They've got a new breed of car, a new kind of car, something has changed compared to the Oldsmobiles of the past, they're, they're vastly better, vastly superior. Well, the author of Hebrews is doing something very similar in this chapter. As a matter of fact, throughout the whole book, in many ways, he is showing these Christians, these were Jewish Christians, apparently, for the most part, that was being written to. He was showing them throughout the epistle uh, the superiority of Christ. So, for some reason, they had grown tired of, weary of Christ and his message and Christianity. Uh, and I'll tell you right, right now, the, the primary reason why anybody grows weary of the things of God always can be traced back to losing your focus on Jesus Christ. And so this book is all about Jesus Christ and regaining our focus on Him. That is at the, the, the basis, the bedrock of everything we believe. Why would these people who apparently are Christians, Jewish Christians, who have been walking with the Lord perhaps for a while, why would they be thinking about moving back now away from Christ and into some form of Judaism Uh, Some of them might have been moving totally away from Christ altogether. Uh, Others were perhaps trying to combine the best of Judaism and the law with Christ and grace, put them in one package. Uh, They might have been doing that. But why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody not find Christ superior and sufficient for all things? Why would they move backwards? I I think the answer goes to our human nature. Uh, We like the things that we're used to. Uh, we like traditions. These people had probably grown up in Judaism. They'd grown up under the law. They'd grown up under the priesthood and the sacrifices. And they liked it that way. Uh, they liked what they'd grown up with. They, they liked those traditions and those rituals. It's amazing how many people will come to our church from another church. Or they're visiting or, or looking for a new church. And after here for a while, they say, well, why don't you do this? Like my old church did. And I'm tempted to say, why don't you go back to your old church? You know, it was, they were so much better than us, you know. But I never say that because it's am too nice. But um, why do people want to go back to something that perhaps was inferior? Well, these people did that. They were going, looking at something inferior, and they liked it. They grew up with it. The old ways are better. And then there's also the advantage of the priesthood. You know, there's something about being able to go to a man who's dressed a different kind of outfit, the priest had different robes and stuff, to go back to a man who seems to be holy, he's been appointed by God, he stands in in between us and God, and to go to that person and and say, would you pray for me, or would you make this sacrifice for me, it seems like it would be better to do that than to go to the Lord directly. And even though what we're talking about here is that the Lord has made it possible for us to draw near, to go to him directly there's something in the minds of many people they'd rather go through a priest uh, we see that today in many of christian uh, denominations and so forth a priest that stands between even in our circle sometimes you'll hear people say uh, i want so and so to pray for me because they can really pray and god will listen to them well that's a wonderful thing uh, maybe maybe they will pray for you maybe they're real prayer warriors and the lord will hear their prayer but you know what he'll hear your prayer too. If you meet the conditions that of, the, of prayer, he will hear your prayer too. That's the great advantage of living under Christ himself and not in the Old Testament system. But they liked that. They also liked the sacrificial system. You know, the sacrificial system was tangible. You could see it. There were priests who were sacrificing animals. The, the blood was slain and sprinkled. The smoke was going up. Night and day, people were bringing their offerings to the the temple. And the temple was there, the tabernacle. These were things they liked. They liked that tangibility. Christianity had none of those things. There was no priest sacrificing animals. There was no temple. We are now the temple of God. We don't see these things visible. They're invisible in us. And they're perhaps saying, you know, I liked it better the old way. I like those old rituals and, and those old tangible things found in the system. And then one more thing to consider. As it's clear in the New Testament, really it's clear in the Old Testament, but it's very clear in the New Testament, uh, the, with Christianity there's nothing left to do for us. There's something about within us that says, Okay, I, I want to be saved, but I, I, surely I've got to do something to be saved. Surely I've got to add something to what Christ has done for my salvation. Uh, I I need to contribute to the cause. I don't know how many times over the years I've given the gospel to somebody. And after telling them that the the gospel is that the holy God wants to be reconciled with you. He wants to, to bring you to himself. He wants to save you from your sins. He wants to give you forgiveness based on the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants to do that and he wants to give that to you as a gift And all you have to do to receive that gift is reach out by faith and believe in Him and trust Him and take that gift. I don't know how many times people have said to me, that's too easy. There's got to be something more. And you try to convince them there is no more. Christ's work is finished. He is offering you the free gift. Salvation is now found in Christ alone. You take it by faith alone. You don't have to be a member of a church You don't have to to be baptized. You don't have to contribute your good works. You receive it as a gift from Christ by faith alone as you turn from your sins. People don't particularly like that. You would think everybody would get saved on that basis. They don't. And so we find that these people here were, were confused perhaps, but they were not seeing Christ as sufficient for them and for their needs at this time. And so the author is doing what? He's hammering home chapter after chapter after chapter the superiority of Jesus Christ. That was the key. Christ is superior to angels. Christ is superior to people. Christ is superior to the priesthood. Christ is superior to the Old Testament system. Christ is superior to everything and everyone. And that is the essential message of the Christian faith. And he's taking us back down these verses, kind of summarizing some of the things he said before. But he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, as I was thinking about that, even just the last few days, I was thinking about my very favorite John Piper quote. Many of you know John Piper, now a retired pastor, but still quite active. Written a number of books. To me, the best book he ever wrote was on preaching. As a pastor, you might get to understand why that is. His book on the supremacy of God in, in preaching, I think, is his best book. And he, he has a quote here that I actually quoted in something I wrote, a book I wrote, that I think really nails it. It's a little bit long, but it, I think you can follow, and I think you should follow, because he is absolutely 100% on the money here. Listen to what he says. People are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The greatness and the glory of God are relevant. It doesn't matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs. that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. That is the greatest need. Our people are starving for God. They need someone, and this is my favorite part of this, they need someone at least once a week to lift up his voice and magnify the supremacy of God. One of the implications for this, for preaching, is that preachers who take their cue from the Bible and not from the world will always be wrestling with spiritual realities that many of their hearers do not even know exist or think essential. If God is not supreme in our preaching, where in this world will the people hear about the supremacy of God? If we do not spread a banquet of God's beauty on Sunday morning, will not our people seek in vain to satisfy their inconsolable longing With the cotton candy pleasures of pastimes and religious hype? If the fountain of living water does not flow over the mountain of God's sovereign grace on Sunday morning, will not the people hew for themselves cisterns on Monday, broken cisterns that can hold no water? Piper's 100% right. And so today we bring before you the supremacy of Jesus Christ. A need that most people don't even know they have. A need that most Christians don't even gravitate toward. But it's the greatest need you'll ever have to understand the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's what this text is about. He's going to show us that that our, our Christ is superior in three different areas. He's going to give us three pillars of truth on which the superiority of Christ stands. We start with his priesthood in verse 26. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, when advertisers are trying to prove that their product is superior to somebody else's, they might do a taste test. Coke might do a taste test against Pepsi and try to get people to, to rate their, their product better. we got something like that going on here. The author is saying, look, no matter how wonderful the Old Testament priesthood might have been, it was God's system, you know. No matter how wonderful the law might have been in the Old Testament, no matter how great some of the priests were themselves... Still, Christ is superior. Stack Jesus Christ against anything and anyone and he comes out the winner every time. The new priesthood is better because the new priest is none other than Jesus. And that's the essence of his argument. Now, he says here that it is fitting to have such a high priest. And that's kind of an odd word, isn't it? In what sense is Christ fitting to be our high priest? Why is that important? Why is that necessary? The word "fitting" itself is an interesting word. It's a word that simply means it fits. That's not hard at all, isn't it? You don't need to know Greek to know that. It just fits. Remember when when uh, David was going to fight against Goliath, and he went out to go to war, to, and and Saul said, "Look, you need to put on my armor if you're going to fight that giant." And David was just a shepherd boy, and he uh, just went out in a shepherd garb and with his slingshot, and Saul said, "No way. You need my." My equipment, you need my armor to fight against this giant. But David said, it doesn't fit. It, remember, Saul was a big guy. He, he was head and shoulders above most of the people in Israel. Uh, he wasn't anywhere near the giant's size, but he was a big guy. And David, if we get any hint at all, was kind of undersized. And that says a lot to the Jewish people because most of them were shorter than me. You know, as a matter of fact, I was, I'm not short. I was just born in the wrong era, you know. <laughs> These people were probably five, 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 six. David might have been smaller than that. Perhaps Saul was six, six. I don't know. And that armor didn't fit, so so he wouldn't wear it. It didn't fit. That's our word here. But Jesus is fitting for the for the for the test contest in front of him. Why? What what makes him fitting to do what he needed to do? Well, there's we're given five qualities of Christ here, all pointing. To his superiority. Christ is fitting for these five reasons. None of the priests could claim any of these things. First of all, he was holy. We have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, <clears throat> exalted above the heavens. First of all, holy. Now this word is interesting because it's not your typical word for holy. It's the only, this is the only time it's used in the book of Hebrews. Most of the time when the word holy shows up, it's a word that means to be set apart. God is like no one else. God is holy. He's different than everything and everyone. He is set apart. He's unique. That's usually the word holy that we find in scripture. But this is not that word. This is a word that means undefiled or unpolluted. This is what we actually, most of us think of when we think of the word holy. Morally pure. And it says that the Lord himself was morally pure. He was unpolluted by anything. Uh, God is a holy God and only can be approached by a holy people. The problem was that the people in the Old Testament, as well as today, were not holy. You can't approach God without being consumed. And the the, the Old Testament people knew that God was a consuming fire. Remember, I think, last week we read in Hebrews chapter 12 and under the Old Testament system, and the fear that was there, because of the people, because they, they were unholy, and God was a consuming fire, you could not go, into the presence of God, and not be consumed, because he was holy, if somehow, and this is a crude illustration, if somehow we could capture the very essence, of the holiness of God, and have that in our elevator over here, most of you didn't even know we had an elevator, We've never used the elevator, but they made us by the elevator, but there's the elevator. Okay, now, if we could put God in that elevator in all of his blazing holiness, the Jews knew to walk into that presence of that kind of God would destroy them in a moment. And if you believe that you could open the elevator door and walk into the presence of the blazing hot consuming God's glory, if you believe that, you're nuts. Because it would consume you. It would destroy you in a moment. That's a kind of holiness that our Lord has. And the Old Testament system could not match that. The Old Testament system could not bring us into the presence of of a holy God because even the system itself and the people involved were not holy. But Christ can. Christ is fitting for the task because Christ is holy. Secondly, it says he's innocent. This is very similar to holy, but it carries the idea of no hint of sin. Completely free from any hint of sin whatsoever. And it carries another connotation, some commentators have said, of, of having this innocence having an effect on us. It actually kind of rubs off on us, this innocence of his. Uh, let's take, for example, the uh, antiseptic sprays that we've been using for our hands and for our counters so you take one of those uh, sprays or soaps and, and there's no germs in there supposedly and you spray it on your hands and the counters and you kill the germs because what's in the bottle now has an effect on the things it's sprayed upon. That's the idea here. The, the innocence of the Lord, the, the pure holiness of the Lord is, affects how we live ourselves. And the closer we draw near to the holiness of Christ, the innocence of Christ, the more we become like Him. You ever been around somebody who is uh, so caustic, so mean-spirited, so nasty in the way they talk about others or whatever, that when you leave their presence, you'll want to go home and take a shower? You know, just, just nasty, you know? Or, or, or you been around somebody who's, who's the opposite, who's just kind and gracious and, and speaks well of other people, and you're around them, and, and you feel differently. If you hang around with people that are caustic and mean-spirited, you're it's prob- probably going to rub off on you. Proverbs tells us don't run around with a hot-tempered person or you'll become like them. And so the same thing with the holiness. Hang around with people that love Christ and, and walk with Him. And that kind of rubs off. The closer we get to Christ, the more we should look like Him. And then the third one is undefiled. Undefiled, the, people, the Jewish people would understand that well because under the Old Testament system, their animals had to be undefiled and their priest had to be undefiled. Let's start with the animals. Go back to Malachi, chapter 1. That that isn't a hard one to find because it's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi, chapter 1. And we find the Lord in Malachi quite displeased with these Jewish people. They've come back from the exile and they were better than they had been, but there's some major issues going on and Malachi points that out. In chapter 1, verse 5, we have these words. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despised my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? They were oblivious to their own sinfulness. You ever get there? let follow up. He says, you're, providing, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now here's, here it is, verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. Here were people that were following the letter of the law, the ritual of the law. They were going to sacrifices. They were bringing their sacrifices regularly, all the time, just like they're supposed to. They thought they were home free. But the Lord saw what they were doing. They were bringing defiled animals, blind animals, sick animals, uh, lame animals, animals that that were useful for nothing else. And they looked in their flock and said, well, I got eight cows. One of them's really sick, probably going to die next week. I think I'll offer that to Christ or God. And this is what they were doing. Well, God saw that, right? He wasn't oblivious to what they were doing. He said, I will not accept those kinds of animals because the Old Testament law made it extremely clear that only undefiled animals could be brought. If your animal had any blemish, any fault, you couldn't bring it. Read the book of Leviticus if you're real bored this afternoon and you'll find that real clear there. And so they were bringing these defiled animals, and the Lord would not accept those animals. As we go back to our passage, let me, let me remind you that it's in Romans chapter 12 that Paul uses this metaphor, this sacrificial metaphor, to talk about us. Now, we don't sacrifice animals, but remember what it said in Romans 12.1? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to the Lord. A living and holy sacrifice. The metaphor is there. Don't bring to the Lord your leftovers. If you're going to follow Christ, follow Christ. If you're going to to live for Him, give Him your all. Don't give Him your leftover money. Give Him the best right off the top. Don't don't give Him your, your leftover energy. Give Him the best. Don't give him what's what just little pieces of your life dedicate yourself to him, a living sacrifice. So, Paul uses the same idea in Romans chapter 12. Now, we're back to our passage of scripture, and it's also the not only was the sacrifice to be undefiled, but the priest were to be undefiled. Again, you go back to the book of Leviticus or Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you find that any priest who was involved in the sacrificial system had to be. Undefiled. They couldn't have a broken fingers. They couldn't have a, a limb that was missing. Uh, they couldn't uh, have some kind of disease. They couldn't even have a blemish. And so if they had a scar or something, they were disqualified from being priests. They had to be undefiled. And if uh, a priest was not did not have a major issue, but he got a pimple on his nose this week, he was out. No blemish was allowed. Now think about that. You had to have an unblemished... and an unblemished priest, that was impossible to maintain all the time. But Christ now is, it says here, undefiled, permanently undefiled. There are no blemishes in Christ. And that makes him supreme. That makes him superior to all else. Fourth, he separated from sinners, we see here. When Christ was incarnate, he became a man. He came down to this earth, he took on human flesh, he has human emotions, human weaknesses in some sense. He was tempted like we were, but he never sinned. He was in our world, he was a man, but he was always separated from sin. But then look at the last one, moving quickly, exalted above the heavens. He lived on this earth sinlessly, but when he left this earth, he went back to the heavens and he was exalted in the heavens. This is who our Christ is. Now we can't not read that and not go back to Revelation chapter 5. So the last book of the Old New Testament, Revelation chapter 5. And look at verse 9. Here we're, we're having a picture of heaven. The angelic creatures, the creatures of heaven, are praising God, praising Christ. And as they do so, notice how they exalt Him. He's exalted in the heavens. Verse 9. Of chapter 5 of Revelation. And he sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then dropped down to verse 11. And then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them with myriads of myriads. And thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sat on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. That's a great worship service in heaven. He's exalted in the heavens. Our Lord came to earth as a humble man to die for us. But now he has been resurrected and ascended and exalted into the heavens. And he is there being exalted even today and will be forever. Why is he fitting to be our great high priest? Because he is holy. He is innocent. He's undefiled. He's separated from sinners and he's exalted in the heavens. This is the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is a superior priest. Verse 27 tells us he is the superior sacrifice. Who does not need daily like those high priests. To offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins. And then for the sins of the people. Because he, this he did once for all. When he offered up himself. So we start with this. The, the very fact that he is the superior priesthood. Now the superior sacrifice. Even the best of the Old Testament priests were sinners, right? They were constantly making sacrifices, not only for the people, but for themselves as well. They were appointed by God to be priests, but they were sinners as well. But Jesus was sinless. That's his point. We, he had no need to offer a sacrifice for himself. Now, in 12.2, if you drift, drift Drip, drip, I don't know, drift over there for a minute to 12.2. Notice what it says here. Kind of applying some of these things. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remember, the superior Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to note there that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he's the author and perfecter of our faith and that word author means trailblazer. We've seen that earlier in the book. He's the one that guides us to God. He's the one that takes us there. He's our trailblazer. He's our pioneer. And so as we think about that, who would you rather guide you through the Amazon jungle? Somebody who, can't, who gets turned around every time they walked out of their tent and does not know where they're going or do you want an experienced guide that knew exactly what they're doing? Well, I don't think you have to think long about that, would you? Marsha and I, uh, when we were in England years ago, uh, we uh, went to uh, we, we we rented a car, and which was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. And uh, we drove over there for about ten days, I think. And we were, on, of course, over in England. You drive on the other side of the road. You're driving on the other side of the car, and you it's always shift shift. They all they have is clutches, so you're shifting with the wrong hand, and you're driving. In, first of all, in London, and then all over the place. And we got to our place, and the, the thing is, they didn't have GPSs then, and Marcia and I are perpetually lost. We get lost coming to church sometimes. We are just lost people. We're always confused about wherever we're going. We spent the whole 10 days in England lost. Every time we left our house, we got lost. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how to get there. We just went out and came back sometime, Somehow. The roads were different, the signs were different. One of the funniest ones, we went to Nottingham. Remember Maid Merriam and Robin Hood and all those guys were supposed to be hanging out there? So we went over to, the, to see the castle in Nottingham. And we got there, and, and it wasn't what I was expecting. There wasn't a little castle with a bunch of peasants running around. It's a gigantic city. And we got totally lost in Nottingham. We were driving down the street, and I rode down my window. There's a guy standing on the road and said, Do you know how to get to the castle? He said, yes, but it would be easier if I just took you there. So he got in the back of the car, a guy I never know in my life, and he started instructing us how to get to the castle. We hadn't gone five blocks, and he says, you're not from England, are you? I was kept running to the side of the, of the road, you know, and weaving all over the place. You're not from England, are you? About five more blocks, he says, could you let me out here? And so he did. He got out of the car, and we were still completely lost. We were so lost, we totally gave up. We, who cares about Maid Miriam and Robin Hood? They're dead. Let's get out of here, for we're dead. So we tuck off found an off wrap somewhere and headed home. And we're so glad that several hours later we got home after running around the countryside for a while. You know what I needed? A guide. I didn't have one. It was me and Marcia, and she's bad at directions. We went past Denver one time, drove all the way past Denver, and I said why do we get to this place we're going to in Denver she said Denver's back there we passed it 20 minutes ago the whole city of Denver and then I'm worse than her so I don't pick it on her entirely she can't read a map and I can't tell directions we make a great team but you know what Christ is not like that who is our trailblazer who is taking us the right direction not a fallible priest not a fallible preacher but Jesus Christ himself He's the trailblazer. He's the one who takes us to where we need to go. And his superiority is, is really defined here by that last line when he says, Once for all, he offered himself up. It's finished. I want to really hammer that home. We've already talked about it at the communion service, but it is done. It is finished. There's few things in his life that is finished. Believe it or not, about a month or so from now, we're going to start mowing grass. Oh, joy. You know? I start mowing grass in March and I quit sometime around Christmas. Seems like it never stops growing. But I go out on Monday and I mow it. And it's done. Finished. But three or four days later, it's back. And I'm mowing it again. It's never done. Over and over and over. Nothing in life is ever seemingly finished. The Old Testament priesthood was like that. Sacrifices forever. Day after day, hour after hour. The fires never went out. The smoke was never gone. It was always there. But Christ, once for all, sacrificed himself for us and it's done. It is finished. It is over. Nothing is left to do. Christ has done it all. It's sufficient. Christ is not being sacrificed over and over. I said that at the communion service. He's not going to the cross every time we have a communion service. He's not continuously on the cross sacrificing for us. He died clearly once for all. It's done. No more is needed. He died once and once was enough. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And he drops another hint here he's going to pick up on in chapter 10 that he offered up himself. That's going to be a major theme in chapter 10 but every Old Testament sacrifice needed two things it needed a qualified priest and it needed a qualified offering the priest had to go through a certain ritual to be able to be qualified the offerings had to be perfect without blemish to be offered but Christ now once for all has paid the perfect sacrifice for us He is the priest without blemish. He is also the offering without blemish. He does dual duty here. So Christ is superior priest. And he gives a superior sacrifice. Here's the third pillar of truth. He brings us the superior system or the superior way in verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of an oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. These uh, Jewish Christians wanted to go back to an inferior system. We as Christians sometimes want to go back to some inferior thing of our past, our our youth perhaps. He says you don't need to do that because the things of the past were weak. That gives us three contrasts between what they had in the Old Testament and what Christ now provides in the New Testament. The first is the the contrast between law and law. And oath. These people wanted to go back under the law. There's some kind of magnetic pull for people to go back under the law. They want the control of the law. They want, they want the, the, the black and white of the law. They want to be law bound. Even good Christians sometimes get caught up in that. And he says here, the law is inferior to the oath. The law, he says, appoint men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, the oath is superior to the law. Let me illustrate that. Most of you have probably bought a house, a lot of you have, or a car. And you go in and you and you sit down, let's stay with the the house, you sit down with the bank of the loan officer, you're at the table, and you got several people there, and they have all these forms they want you to sign, right? You're supposed to initial here and sign here. And and when you do that, you are saying, and they tell you this, you are saying you have read this and you agree. Really? Does anybody read that stuff? I mean, I actually asked a loan officer one time, does anybody actually read this while you're here? And he sadly said, once in a great while somebody does. It takes four hours to get out of here. But if you did read it, and if you haven't read your paperwork from the past, go home this afternoon when you need a good nap, pull it out and start reading it, you'll find you can't understand it. It's written in legalese so that you can't hardly understand any of it, even if you could read it. So you're doing that, and that's the law. That's the regulations. That's what it says. But nobody reads it because nobody can understand it. So you say to the loan officer, and it's what we all say, tell me what it says. And the loan officer says, well, all it means is you're signing your life away, is what it means. But all all it means is you're you're promising to pay this or whatever. He said, "Oh, okay. Then our next question is, can I trust you? Of course, you can trust him or her. You never met them in your life. You don't know anything about them. Surely they can be trusted, right? Well, I hope so. But look here: the law was perfect, but we weren't and couldn't keep it. But the oath is from God Himself, who cannot lie. The promise of God." Who One who cannot lie, who will never tell us an untruth, is what we bank on. Which is superior, the Old Testament law or the oath of God? And again, go back and read Leviticus. If you can understand all the details there, you're doing great. It's no wonder people spent their whole lifetime studying the law. Very complicated, very difficult. Very few people understood it. But the promise of God is clear. God says, okay, you may not get all that in the law... But here's my promise to you Jesus Christ went to the cross died for your sin and offers you the eternal life if you will turn from your sin and trust him for forgiveness and he will forgive your sin save your soul make you his child and give you eternal life wow and that's God's promise which is superior the law or the oath Secondly, we see that that the priests were weak, but the Son is infallible. These are weak people, but the Son is not weak. He is powerful. And finally, the law was temporary, but what Jesus offers is permanent. Notice the last word in verse 28, made perfect forever. This will never change. Uh, The law was temporary. It was given to the people for a time period. But the oath of God, the promise of God, the sufficient work of Christ is forever, and we were saved forever. Now, people have always sought God, the presence of God, but there's a barrier that is erected between us and God, and that barrier is sin. It's, that barrier could only be removed by the one who came to die for us as our perfect offering and our, as our perfect priest, so that door is open that we can now draw near to him. The next time Marsha and I went to England, we'd wised up a little bit, And we now traveled with people who lived in England. They picked us up. They drove us around. We stayed in their car. We never got lost once. We never ran over a curb. We never chased people down sidewalks. We were in in perfect rest in the back seat. They got us to where we needed to go because we had a superior driver who got us to where we needed to go. We never had one temptation once to jump out of that car and rent a car. And do it ourselves. Not once. Because we knew we had a superior driver who knew where they were going. And we wanted to stay right there. That's his argument. Why go to anything else? Jesus is a superior way. Jesus is a superior priest. Jesus is a superior sacrifice. You can't do better. He is supreme over all things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for the superiority of Jesus Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, our High Priest. We hope, Lord, today that we have glorified and magnified the superiority of your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.